0: Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly. We have a new podcast launching this week exclusively on Spotify with Chris Ryan and Chuck Klosterman called Music Exists. Here's the trailer. Hello, this is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at the ringer.com. Hello, this is Chuck Losterman. I'm a friend of Chris Ryan and The Ringer. And this is Music Exists, a podcast where we talk about how we think about music. Yeah, this is not a podcast where we tell you what music to listen to or we necessarily comment on what's happening in the culture right now or what you should be listening to tomorrow before your friends do. This is a podcast about thinking about music even when it's not playing. Yeah, how does music shape the world you see around you, the world you feel around you? How does it make you feel about yourself? Yeah, particularly if the music that makes you feel things about yourself is Steely Dan or Black Sabbath. Or Radiohead. Yeah, that happens. That comes up a lot. Music exists, a podcast about Radiohead. (laughs) Available exclusively on Spotify.
1: Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thanks to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. This week we have Sweet Green co-founder Nick Jemmett. Last week we launched a bowl. It was the kelp bowl with uh, sweet potatoes, chicken, tomatoes, kelp, and that was the big big uh, ingredient. And also we got to use some of our seasoned salts with it as well. So. Bunch of things were aligned with this, but I've known Nick a long time, Uh, friends with his mom who used to run one of the great New York restaurants, one of the gastronomic temples of French cuisine in New York City, La Caravelle. And the Gemay family has been someone that's been a big supporter of Momohugu from its inception. And uh, it's been cool to watch what Nick and his other co-founders have done with Sweetgreen, I mean, I can't think of another sort of fast casual, if you would even call it that concept, that's taken off as successfully as Sweetgreen over the past decade plus. So getting the opportunity to work with Nick was amazing. We have a lot of, I would say, friends and former employees that work for each other and vice versa. The The Momofuku Sweetgreen family is... Uh, we're very closely intertwined and related, so was very excited to get to work with them. Uh, my history with sweet even goes further back. Uh, Casey Gleason, who is uh, part of their R&D team, in fact, was probably one of the first people that got me introduced to cooking. My mom was sick in college, and I took a semester off to help out, and I visited a bunch of friends in Georgetown, and uh, this was what, 95, ninety five ninety nineteen ninety six 1996, and... I met Casey, and when I would crash over at their place on the weekends, because we'd go out, I'd always be amazed that while I was sleeping on the couch or something, this kid Casey would get up there at four in the morning to go to work, and I was always amazed because... He was so diligent and when we would come back and he wasn't working or studying, we'd have these conversations and he was the first person to sort of open my eyes that you could make a career out of food. And he was someone that was very smart. I think he was studying um, Middle East uh, and definitely Farsi or something like that. But Casey, who has a career as a baker and at other restaurants, was one of the first people to, again, like tell me the lifestyle and how different it was from everyone else that we knew. And I remember one day he was trying to tell me how to make croissants and I just couldn't understand what a laminated dough was. And I had, up until that time, you know, most of my knowledge was through PBS and Great Chefs of the West and stuff like that. But the idea of making a career out of cooking was not even a seed of my mind at that time. I was, what, 18, 19 years old. And Casey was the first person to plant that seed. So in a roundabout way, he wound up working and still a part of the sweet green team. It's uh, sort of come full circle. And again, to the Jamee family, that's been so important to Momofuku's career, my career. Getting to be part of this whole process was a lot of fun, a lot of work, and very excited about what we were able to do. Uh, the other important information for me was getting to work with kelp. The fact that so much of my career in food sort of has been like allergic reaction at the things that I grew up uh, and Korean identity and such, very important to me now and stuff that I very much struggle with as a kid. And in so many ways, what I ate and what I was perceived to be cool or acceptable was shaped when I was growing up in the early 80s, mid 80s. And one of the things that I remember being, I wouldn't say made fun of or vilified, but sort of... I mean, what I meant was fun, not vilified, but was kelp and seaweed. And, and I remember bringing this snack, this Korean snack, which is basically fried kelp with a little salt and sugar, and it's delicious. And I remember bringing that to school one day, and everyone was like, what are you eating? You're eating like weeds. It was like roasted kids. And another time, I think, again, friends coming over, whatever. And one of the things I grew up snacking on was keen, Korean laver, the Korean version of nori, but Again, while nori might be, in higher end nori might be better for uh, nigiri and sushi, to me, the thing to eat that was more delicious was Korean, the Korean version, because it's seasoned with sesame and salt, and it was always so delicious to me. And the fact that there were years where I just stopped eating this stuff. I stopped eating miyukuk, which is the Korean soup that you eat on birthdays, and again, a very Korean dish that I love very much. These Now I do. And kim and all kinds of seaweed and kelp. I don't know how many years, I just stopped eating it because I was so emotionally sort of scarred from being associated with that. And that was just on the part of identity and, and, and stuff that I had to wrestle with. And then I realized now that seaweed is Acceptable in so many ways, not just in an Asian restaurant that serves seaweed salad, but the fact that you can get Korean kim, the laver, at CVS or Dwayne Reed, right next to the hand sanitizer. Like kids today now eat that in school. It's cool to bring it in your lunchbox. That was so important for me to understand because it made me realize that cultural truths, particularly in regards to food, are almost always wrong. So getting to work with the bull when they asked me about helping them make a sweet green kelp bowl with the Momofuku team and ingredients, I was overjoyed. And also, you know, not to sound cliche, but we're going to have uh, David Wallace-Wells, who wrote The Un- Uninhabitable Earth again, hopefully in the next couple months or so, talk about a lot of uh, the repercussions of the environment and, and things like that. These are things that I've known about the environment. I wouldn't say I paid lip service to it, but it wasn't something that I could quite comprehend or think about in a way that was uh, meaningful or important to me. But after having Hugo born last year and the world that he's gonna inherit and us being the custodians, it's something I think a lot more about and I'm excited to do so. And I'm not an environmental biologist, I'm not on a like a trying to preach this, but the fact of the matter is. If you can popularize kelp, if you can make it more acceptable, there are positive environmental benefits to the world to eating it. And there are plenty of new ways to eat and grow kelp. And all along the Eastern seaboard, there seems to be someone opening up some kind of new kelp business and 3D farming. So it's an awesome opportunity. And I have no doubt, besides the environmental benefit and the deliciousness of kelp, It's just a matter of time before it becomes popularized and accepted in how we eat. I've seen this in everything. The one ingredient that is sort of made fun of becomes sort of a central staple to our diet. And growing up as a Korean American, eating seaweed and kelp was just something you you have in the fridge and you eat all the time. And and if uh, kimchi and parasite and all these other Korean elements of culture are becoming Accept it. I have a hard time believing that kelp won't be one of it. And again, there's plenty of cultures that use kelp. I'm not just saying it's Korean. Anyway, I'm talking on and on and on. But you can get this bowl at Sweet Green. I know this sounds like a advertorial. It's not. I just wanted to have this opportunity to have Nick on to explain why we were doing it and to just tell the story of of someone I admire a lot and the business that he's helped build is is really remarkable. And um, listen, I walk by Sweet Greens all the time, and I'm I'm very, very impressed. And uh, if there's not one near you, I'm pretty sure it'll be coming to a town near you as well. So, oh, before we start, I wanted to add one more thing. We're going to have two podcasts this week. So today's with Nick Jimé. We have another podcast coming out Thursday with Sean Gray and Sue Ruez, the chef and general manager of Co. We recorded this a couple months ago and we've been trying to do this now actually since uh we started this podcast 90 plus shows ago but there's been scheduling issues and it's just been really hard to get everyone on the sort of same date to do this and thankfully we got Sean and Sue to do this podcast it's a post opening diaries of co their family I love them dearly excited for you guys to get to know them a little bit more and uh an inside look at running one of, uh, I think one of the best restaurants out there. So excited about that. Um, I'll shut up right now. And here's my conversation with Nick Chimay, co-founder of Sweetgreen. So one of the things we're talking about is doing a podcast and it's a little bit of meta because I'm talking to Nick Chimay, one of the co-founders of Sweetgreen's and a close friend of mine. And I've been telling him for a while, you should be doing a, a podcast just to talk about the growth and the philosophy of Sweet Green and where you guys are at. A bunch of very smart, industrious entrepreneurs trying to change the fast food, sort of how do you eat every day kind of thing. I think people want to know more about that and the company you're building.
0: Yeah. You know, the bigger we get and the more um, the more stories we have to tell, it's important for us to think about how... We want to tell those stories and what channels to use. And one of the most interesting things about that whole journey is we obviously have a lot to say externally to our customers and to the world and to our guests, but we now have a team of almost 5,000 team members. And I think it's equally important to think about how we share our stories, about how we make decisions, about what we believe with them. And thinking about that journey is really important. And, uh, you know, me, John, and Nate think a lot about this around how do we scale this culture? How do we scale, you know, we say scale intimacy. When Sweetgreen started, it was like any small business, you know every team member and it's really intimate and you have a strong culture. And then as you scale, it gets really hard to control that. And I think communication and making sure everyone you hire and everyone that works for you understands the mission and why you're doing what you're doing can help keep that culture strong.
1: You know, one of the reasons why we did the pre-opening diaries just to begin with when we opened up Major Domo a couple years ago was simply how do we make sure the message is there for all potential new employees and this sort of cultural identity that we're trying to create is, as you know, it's the constitution of your company. Mm -hmm. How do you keep it alive? How do you keep it so it's not stagnant? How different is it now than when you first started out in Georgetown? I mean, obviously a lot, but talk about
0: the cultural challenges. I mean, it's wildly different. You know, I I think back to Georgetown when we opened our first restaurant there in 500 square feet, where the three of us were working there every single day, you know, washing dishes, making salads, bringing them up, meeting every single customer. And there is something beautiful about that. And I I think back to that time and some of the, the greatest lessons I have around running a business came from that moment. Some of the hardest moments were in that first year. That first winter, you know, we almost didn't make it. You know, I remember in, I think December, we were making, you know, a couple hundred bucks a day in sales. No one was coming in because we had no seats and it was salads. How sad is that feeling? (laughs) It's sad, but to be honest, it was, I look back to that moment often because it's an incredibly powerful feeling to think about how to save your business, how to make sure it doesn't, that it can survive, right? And a lot of businesses don't survive, but it forces you to really be scrappy and think about what's important. Think about how your business needs to evolve. And I think back to that first winter, pretty often, I mean, the three of us talk about it, that it's survival mode. I think so much about being an entrepreneur and about building a company, you have to be ready and you have to understand what survival mode is. And so we learned so much that first winter and then we came out of it stronger than ever and then sales ramped and then, you know, it forced us to think about, okay, next winter's coming. What are we going to do to avoid that? And our menu evolved and we, and, you know, as we started to build our second location, we made it, made sure it was bigger with seats and made sure that we could evolve the business in a way that it would be stronger. How many years ago was that? 12 years ago. Crazy. It's really crazy. I mean, we opened a month after graduation. And And you had planned this as like a senior project or something like that? It wasn't a senior project, funny enough. I mean, the three of us had taken an entrepreneurship course at Georgetown. At the time, there was one class. Now there's a whole major. But, you know, we love the idea of building something and solving a problem we had for ourselves. And Sweet Cream really started because the three of us just were sick of eating the things we were eating every day, whether it was in the cafeteria or the options we had in town or on campus. And we didn't understand why there wasn't an option of food that people could get really excited about and had access to that was healthy. And we looked around and all the most exciting options, the most delicious options, the most accessible options were all the least healthy. And then we would have that afternoon slump and you'd get the sweaty palms in the afternoon and you'd, you need to take a nap or have a coffee. And we just didn't want to have that feeling anymore.
1: I mean, isn't that the definition I think, or one of, of an entrepreneur is just to see a hole in the market and be like, I can fill this need?
0: Exactly. It's funny thinking back to that first location, we were probably more confident in that location than pretty much any other location we've signed because we were, we were building it for ourselves. We were the customer and we knew our friends and our girlfriends and everyone around us also wanted this. And even though we thought about what this could be beyond Georgetown or beyond DC, it was very clear to us that this would work in Georgetown because we were the customer.
1: Your co-founders didn't have restaurant experience or know of it. If you don't know of the Jume family, they're uh, very important, I think, to the New York City landscape of dining. And your parents ran Le Caravelle, one of the true French icons. And your mom's been a great supporter of my career and our our businesses. And did you think you were ever going to be in the food business? Right? Because I can't imagine my son being like, yeah, dad, I want to get into this.
0: You know, my parents never pushed me into the food business. And uh, originally my family was in, you know, my grandparents and beyond were in broader hospitality like hotels. I thought there was a chance I would end up there. But, you know, seeing what my parents did, the way they worked in the restaurant industry, (laughs) it was mom and pop, old school. They were there every single day, open to close. There wasn't a customer that walked into La Caravelle that wasn't greeted by my dad. And so that's a tough life. That's really hard. And I don't think they ever pushed that on me. But at the same time, I learned, and you know, this was true for John and Nate also, the three of us, uh, all of our parents and families are immigrants and came to the U.S. and built something and worked their butts off for it. And so we all had that similar experience and similar values, I think. And that that was one of the first things we bonded around, was we know that if you wanted to build something and create something, that it took really hard work.
1: When you guys were thinking about the concept of making customized salads or just for someone that doesn't know if there's not a sweet green in the area for themselves yet, as a listener, what separates sweet green now versus other places that sell salads, which are a lot?
0: Yeah, you know, in the beginning, it was about creating a place where you could get healthy options and uh, customizable options and making sure it's really accessible. And then most importantly, trusting the food. So trusting the source of the food, trusting that it was good for you, that it would make you feel good in the afternoon. And so early on, you know, we knew nothing about supply chain. We knew nothing about farmers. You know, even though my parents were in the restaurant industry, it was fine dining French food. It's a very different world. So we obviously took a lot of the values around hospitality and how to make a customer feel. But in terms of running a fast food, you know, produce driven concept, we knew nothing, right? And I think we look back often to how positive that was actually. If we knew more about the restaurant industry, we probably would have made different decisions and we probably would have done things the way everyone else did them. And obviously we want to constantly be students of the industry and learn as much as we can, but the fact that we had no idea how to build a restaurant, how to source forced us to ask certain questions and and maybe challenge certain norms and do things differently, whether it was by accident or intentionally.
1: I always thought like maybe subconsciously or not because you grew up in the La Caravel household and you know, French food isn't necessarily heavy, but it's not like light. Is that one of the reasons like, man, I, I can't, I need to surround myself with white lettuces and such.
0: <laughs> uh, funny enough, that w- was not one of the inspirations. You know, we, a lot of it was just around our diets in college. And I think even though I grew up in a, you know, French cuisine household, my parents, you know, it was always a lot of like fresh cooking at home and John and ate the same thing. This idea of fresh Fresh food that made you feel good. And they grew up in LA where there was more access to healthy food, I think, than uh, 12 years ago in a place like DC.
1: But that's funny is if you go to DC now, I feel like health is sold everywhere. And mm-hmm. having spent a lot of time in Georgetown, you get college food fair, drunk food fair. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a salad on <laughs> Wisconsin in my life.
0: <laughs> yeah. And all those things are delicious. But after eating them every day, we just realized we didn't want to feel like that. And we wanted different options. And we... uh Yeah, it it was funny. So much of it was just driven by our own personal belief.
1: So what do you think has been the secret to your success for a variety of reasons and not just your talent intuition? There's got to be some time because the salad restaurant has been around for a while and it's not just a salad. My my take on it is somehow you were able to capture the zeitgeist, which is always so important, that people wanted this. Thing that's different. It's a salad, but there's meaning behind what you're doing. And I think you guys figured out that it's not just salad; it's the culture, it's the company behind it. How do you describe that culture that has remained the same through twelve years?
0: You know, it's it's a good question. I think a lot of it was intentional around wanting to build a purpose-driven business, wanting to build something that stood for something more than just you know a, a bowl of food. And early on, we knew we, we had to develop an ethos and a belief in food, and we just became students of it. And we were always very transparent with our customer on that. And we wanted to share what we b- believed. I think at the same time, you know, rewind to 12 years ago, it was actually when people started to really question a lot more about their food. And mm-hmm. I think it was a lot of right place, right time. And, uh, you know, things like Bunch of documentaries were coming out that were questioning food, and certain books were becoming pretty popular, like, you know, Michael Pollan 10 years ago, that his big book that everyone was reading, Omnor's Dilemma, were really making customers start to question what they were putting in their body. And I think so much of that helped us in the conversation. And then I think at the same time, we helped push that conversation forward.
1: You guys opened up the year before the recession?
0: Yes, 2007. <laughs>
1: so this is my, my take on it. Because everyone's tried to enter this, this market because I think there's holes in the sort of quick service space and food, but everyone's like, oh, I got to be the next Chipotle or the next Shake Shack. I think there's probably been a handful of concepts that have succeeded. I think no more than Shake Shack and Chipotle. I think it's not a coincidence that they both really scaled and grew their second and third locations during the... 2008-2009 crisis, like literally right then. I think Sweet Greens, one of the reasons why it worked too is people had to reassess how they wanted to eat and how they wanted to live. People already forgot just how doom-filled that year was. <laughs> and I think it cleared the slate for Sweet Green to crush because it would be a lot harder for any concept to do it post-recession and pre-recession. I think it was like the right timing, if you want to say it's that, I think you guys took advantage of the opportunity. And that's why you guys are great entrepreneurs, because I put you guys in that same sort of rarefied air of Chipotle, the Shake Shacks of the world that really have changed how we eat on a day-to-day basis. And that was the silver lining through some pretty terrible times. But I think people forget about that. Like you guys were created an inception before the worst recession of
0: our lives. It was a funny time to be growing a business because to your point on the customer side, I think... We offered a value prop that they that they really wanted at the time. They could trade down from sitting down at a lunch, you know, that cost them thirty bucks in two hours, and they could get the same quality of food for ten bucks in twenty minutes. And I think that ability to trade down, customers valued that. At the same time, to be trying to raise money in an environment like that <laughs> as an entrepreneur was really tough. And I remember back to two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and we were raising. Money for our second and third location. And we really struggled. And we were taking like $5,000 checks or anyone that would give us money at the time, we would take it. Did you ever ask me back then? I would have given you money. I don't think we were friends in 2008. (laughs) I think you were only friends with my mom back then. (laughs) This is true. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, it's really insane (laughs) the footprint that you guys have with guests. It's one of these cultural things where it's part of people's daily routine. It's sweet green is their one highlight of their day. How the hell does that happen? I mean, I look at that, and I'm just like, "What and how?" Because it has this allegiance that it's almost like soul cycle ish to people <laughs> in a way. Like people are like, "This is what I fucking do." Did you guys? How did you guys feed that? Because I think everyone would kill to have what you guys have done.
0: Yeah, I mean, makes me really happy to hear you say that because that that is the relationship with the customer we're trying to build. And I think so much of it, I hope, starts with the quality of the product. And, you know, I think customers trust that, whether it's because of how we list all the farms in every restaurant, that there's a trust in where we get our products from. And so much of the sweet green experience over the past few years has been rooted not only in the quality of the product and sharing that with the customer, but it's also been about trying to remove as much friction from the experience as possible and just making it more convenient to get. And I think one of the problems when we started Sweet Cream that we wanted to solve was it was just really hard to find healthy food. Let alone find healthy food that tasted good and made you feel good, but it was just really hard to find. Um why so, why why is that? What was the reason for that? Well, you know, I think healthy food had a branding problem. Like it was either, you know, really super crunchy and not very good and really expensive and it felt like a chore. You know, there, there were obviously places to find healthy food, but it always felt like an afterthought or a, you know, a place that people felt like You know, when they were on a diet, they had to eat this. And our goal with Sweetgreen was to create just as much desire for healthy food as you have for all different types of food, not just from how it tastes and how it makes you feel, but even how the brand and experience is is marketed and the the physical experience to what the brand stands for and have people want to eat Sweetgreen, not because they should or because it's healthy or because their mom told them to go on a diet or they want, they're eating it because they just desire the product and they want to connect with that brand.
1: You know, having restaurants and as we scale, the sourcing becomes just a total nightmare. Right. <laughs> can do people even understand how much product you have to buy? And, and the positive of this is how you can change the food ways too, because of your purchasing power. Can I dunno if people understand the 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 positive impact you guys can have and supporting farmers?
0: Yeah, it's probably one of the hardest parts of our business. And and again, most satisfying it is part, it's why we do what we do. But, and I don't think we're as good at telling the deeper story around our supply chain, but, you know, we have 300 plus farmers we work with around the country, um, eight different supply networks. So in every region that we open, we uh, find different farmers, growers, and producers. And for us, it's really important because so much of our business is dependent on finding quality food. So it's forced us to really think about building a different system with farmers and trying to scale that. And, you know, we work with small, medium, and large sized farmers very intentionally because we want to work with... Um, people at different scale. We want to work with the really great small farmers that want to grow and want a solid, consistent partner. Uh, We want to work with medium-sized farmers that, you know, have enough scale that allow us to grow and again, want to grow with us. And the largest, you know, we work with some of the largest organic farmers and producers in the country. And that's also great because for us, we want to understand the whole system. And ultimately, as we scale, um, the bigger we get, the more impact we have on how they grow and what they grow. And so for us, it's really important to understand the whole agricultural landscape. This
1: isn't a question about the environment and the future of it even though there's a lot of concerns but you know the question that I I continue to get to is uh, at what point will you look at alternatives to traditional agriculture like hydroponic farming and such is that something that you guys are thinking about because I could imagine a sweet green where all the vegetables growing on top of the, the store I mean theoretically that could happen and I think it could be great because I think hydroponic vegetables are actually super delicious right now
0: yeah, you know, I would say we're really excited overall to see the amount of investment and innovation that's going into growing vegetables and growing food. This past 10 years, I don't think that reality was there before. So, we're very committed to staying uh as like close to all that innovation and curious about it and testing as much of it as possible. You know, we're we're suckers for testing. We, we'll kind of test anything. Um I think in general though, all those innovations and solutions don't replace what has to happen on land and in soil. I think it can complement it and be part of the solution. But ultimately we're big believers that for people in America to eat more real food and for us to be healthier and have healthier diets, we still need to build a system that supports healthier soil and the business of people growing food in that soil. And I think, you know, we often talk about how hard it is to be in the food business and, you know, I look at myself in the mirror every day and say, God, I picked a really hard industry. (laughs) But the one industry that's harder is being a farmer yeah, and so we have to be a business that makes their job easier.
1: Has there been any consideration as to just pulling all meat from your stores as well? There's had to have been these kinds of conversations. what do you what do you say about, hey, sweet cream should just go vegan?
0: You know, I think for us, it's been about it's never about being so extremely one thing, right? It's about giving customers the option and making sure they trust every uh, every ingredient in our store. So for us, we don't have any red meat in the restaurants, and you know we do have, chicken, and we have seafood, and um, for us, we, we're very focused on sourcing those things very consciously to our ethos and sharing that with the customer, but if someone wants to be 100% vegan, they can come in, and green is very vegan-friendly, and so I think for us, it's giving the customers as much information and transparency about the ingredients so they can make decisions for their own health.
1: I mean, I know something that you might be exploring or know a lot about, and something that I continue to run into time and time again when I talk to... Uh, people that might be an investor or trying to figure out a new concept, but my general paranoia is, you know, the merger of tech and what is traditionally a, you know, hands-on like hard labor business. You you have to be thinking how this is going to revolutionize our business because if you're not like you're in for a rude awakening. Do people quite understand where the next 10, 15 years might look like to our business? Of any business in food?
0: You know, I think think there's a lot of disruptions happening along the whole food chain. From, again, how food is grown, to how it's picked, to how it gets to you, to how then the restaurant operates, to how then the product gets to the customer, to how customers are transacting with you. So it's really exciting to see kind of disruption happen along the whole food chain. But as it relates to the in-store experience and how a restaurant is run, you know, we think about it both with the customer and both with our internal customer, the team member. I mean, there's a lot of exciting technology and disruptions that's happening in the kitchen in our backup house that really change how we operate the restaurants and how we can make... Can you, can you divulge any trade secrets? Yeah, I mean, there's not many trade secrets for us. It's, uh, you know, for, I'll give you one example is, um, you know, we do full scratch cooking, full prep cooking in every restaurant. So that's making, you know, cutting every, de-stemming every kale, cutting every piece of uh, every chicken, roasting it. We do, you know, we have no commissary. Wait, can,
1: you, can you explain this again? Because I could imagine an investor potentially saying, uh, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> well, that's, a, that's, a, that's so incredibly inefficient. And we could save 25 cents on every salad if we just buy it in the central commissary and then we store it, blah, 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 blah. Can you explain to someone listening how that model is different than, say, some of your competitors? Because it's telling to me. The, fa- the fact that you guys have remained so committed to doing that is incredibly admirable.
0: Yeah, you know, for us, what's most important as we evolve and everything about sweet green changes is that the thing that we don't compromise and doesn't change is the quality of the food. So <clears throat> how, we, how we prep things, how we create food, how it gets there, things all might change. But at the end of the day, the thing we're very focused on is the final... Uh, product, because the the thing that's kind of true for all restaurants as they scale, like kind of the universal truth, the tide that takes you, is the bigger you get, the worse your food gets, right? As you get bigger in the food industry, your product tends to become shittier, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And You can't scale a 10. Yeah. It's really hard to scale quality food. And it's what you've seen. You know, you hear all these stories of chains today that have thousands of restaurants and you hear these stories of people saying, oh man, I remember when they were small and it was so good. And that's always been our biggest fear in life. Um, how do we protect that quality at Sweetgreen? How do we protect the product? And obviously, not just on the supply chain, but on the in-store execution. And, you know, we, we track a lot of things. We track a lot of uh, metrics and data around our farmers and what we're doing to the soil and how much organic and local, all that stuff. And for us over the years, all those metrics have gotten so much stronger. So, so far in our first 12 years, we've been able to make our food better. And so that's a commitment we're making. How we do that at a 1,000 restaurants, we don't know yet. We're going to figure that out. You know, we have ideas and we have um, parts of it that we do know. But part of the challenge here is no one's ever scaled a business that uh, cooks food the way we do or that sources food the way we do or that talks about healthy food the way we do. And so there's no roadmap. There's no game plans or... Some of this is to be figured out and some of this, you know, we have some of the answers, but it's a...
1: But I think you actually have the answer and it's something that we try to do because, you know, like everyone's like, just make the same Momofuku. And I'm like, (laughs) well, fuck, like I'm always fearful of making it worse, right? Mm -hmm. And my goal is the same as your goal. How do we scale something that is inefficient? And so I just joke, we got to scale inefficiency. And I think maybe what you're saying is that is the paradox is you're scaling inefficiency as well because... You are literally making food from scratch. No, you know, if someone's looking about how to make your food more efficient and your logistics more efficient, you just commissary of this.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, we it's easy to like blanket that across our whole system. But the reality is, in order to protect the things that matter, it takes kind of a strategic approach to thinking about what parts in the system can be maybe upstreamed or what things can you create efficiencies on so that you can protect the things that. You want to keep, in our words, inefficient, you know, and and high quality. And so it's really important for us to understand what things like that, like cutting the fresh produce, like doing that in a commissary and shipping it around the next day, it just won't taste as good. Uh, And a lot of times it's not, you know, as you see concept scale, it's not like they wake up one day and from one day to the next, they've like, the food has gotten overnight shittier. It's cut by a thousand, it's a death by a thousand cuts. You know, it's these little decisions you make every day that you wake up five years later and the product is just radically different. And so for us, we wake up every day trying to say, how can we make it 1% better?
1: Are you surprised at how many people use their phone to order food?
0: We are incredibly surprised. I mean, today, over 50% of our transactions wow. company-wide are digital. So for us, we, we've built a pretty exciting relationship with our customer on our platforms, and it allows us to just create a better experience for them. And, and again, most importantly, you know, of the, the app our Sweet Green app and then all the different channels we've built like Outpost and native delivery, even though it, it you know, it, it's great for our business, it also just it makes it removes friction for our customers, right? right. If they don't want to get it from their desk or they don't want to, you know, wait in a line, it just makes getting our product, healthier food, just easier for them. And ultimately that's the goal.
1: Um, having waited in line, I I've learned that it's become like a, like a water cooler talk for office <laughs> employees. It's like a natural way for them to talk about their day and, and their grievances. It's pretty funny. But, um, whenever I'm in line, I'm always amazed at the amount of delivery bags that you have ready for people to pick up or, or to, you know, just get out of the restaurant. But I always wonder, even though I'm in the industry, how that gets made. So is there a mirror system like a, a line? So, uh, to go order happens, you get it in, does someone actually walk down the line to make the salads or is it all in front of them?
0: No, so um, is actually something we started building in about six years ago, it's at restaurant number 20. Actually, Sweaker Nomad it was right on that time when we opened New York. We realized, and this is probably one of the best things we did in a company history, we realized that we these new channels were going to come. We didn't know how big they were going to be, but that they couldn't just be executed on the front line because then it would disrupt the whole you know customer that walks in. So we started building production lines in the kitchen, separate separate production lines. So it doesn't look anything like the front? No. A little bit. Uh, more condensed, okay. more efficient. Um, and so we started building those in. And thank God we did because for the past six years, it's been the biggest driver of our growth. It's allowed us to really, uh, for our customers to order online more and pick up and for Channels like delivery and outpost, but um, it's funny when you hear even Chipotle. This last two years, their biggest their big innovation has been doing that: installing the lines in the back of house and then the pickup shelves in the front of house. And the reason we're very happy that we somehow figured out to do that is that there's nothing harder than retrofitting restaurants, especially when you're Chipotle and you have 2,000 or 3,000 of them. And so the more flexible you can make your restaurants and the more you can build for future capacity uh, is something we luckily enough thought about a couple of years ago. And it's unlocked a bunch of our growth. So, I mean, today in some of our restaurants, there's up to four or five lines in the back.
1: I I don't even understand. Again, getting a glimpse of the logistics involved, I have no idea how you guys do it because (laughs) it is like, a mad sprint for people coming from the back with bags. I'm like, how are they? How are they getting this organized? It's total, like what seems like chaos. That's what I have to admire. Is I don't know how the hell you guys do that because I don't. It's it's awe inspiring, truly. Because that's frightening stuff.
0: <laughs> Thank you. It's <laughs> to organize. It's frightening for us at moments too. And you know, because <laughs> funny enough, you think about it, we build these restaurants, right? They take a certain amount of time to find the real estate, a certain amount of money to build them. And then all of a sudden you rewind and, you know, your business has changed, but you've built this restaurant, you know, designed it two years ago. So, so much for us has been about trying to adapt the physical experience of our restaurants to the new channels. And it's tough because, you know, the business changes so quickly. So, you know, in some of these restaurants, you're saying where people are running with bags, it's because the restaurant wasn't built for that. And so now it's, you know, we spend so much time thinking about our new restaurants and how to build them for this these new channels, the new experience. And, you know, there's a lot of obviously chatter around like is retail dead or do you even need a restaurant could you just do a delivery kitchen and for us the the you know the broader belief is that i don't think restaurants are going away especially in fast casual i think what the the experience you build needs to needs to evolve and how many you might build or where they are or what the experience is will evolve and change but you know we think that having physical locations where customers can come in and interact with the brand and learn who you are and taste your food and interact with the human is really important
1: Do you feel like you're ever going to get, or I know what the answer is, but you'll never get to a place where like, ah, we did it. We know what the right storefront is.
0: You know, I think we, and you always hope to get there, but you never actually get there. And it's a good thing. Again, it's always, it means things are changing and you're evolving. And I think back to that point of adaptability for us, it's who knows what the sweet green of the future is going to look like in five or six years, but we're going to constantly be poking that and testing different parts of it. And we're going to get a lot of, we're going to get it wrong a lot of times and we're going to get some parts right and we'll double down on those, but you know, we're big believers in embracing failure. And I think you can't – we learned very early on you can't be afraid to fail because if, if you never fail, you're not trying hard enough. You're not trying uh, – not pushing yourself hard enough. Um,
1: You know, we had David Wallace-Wells who wrote The Uninhabitable Earth, a, a great scary book about the environment. And, you know, everyone in this industry cares about the environment. At least they say so. And I, I think a lot of it was lip service. It was for me until I I – was blessed to have a son, and now I'm thinking about the future more than ever before. And I was told that was going to happen. I'm glad that it happened. <laughs> I don't have a lot of the answers. I get a lot of emails and letters from people after that podcast saying, when are you going to talk more about the environment? And do you worry about the the, the 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 imprint we're leaving because we keep on opening up restaurants that sell more beef and such? And I don't have an answer. I don't. All All right. Uh, i don 't know how positive restaurants are for the environment or not, and I have to weigh what I can do with our employees and the way if we can be more successful and having the impact you guys have had in changing the food ways and how people order that 's the long term goal is changing it from the inside slowly but surely but i can 't tell you it 's fast enough and i don 't have the answers I can only say hey it's it 's hard it 's something that 's on our minds constantly is about what is actually best long term right mm-hmm. um How do you guys weigh with that too? Because at the core of what Suicune is, is about the environment and sustainability. But what happens when it becomes so large? And I don't think you can have an answer, but people are asking me, I can only imagine what they're asking you.
0: Yeah. You know, it's probably, you know, the biggest conversation we're having, uh, especially in the last couple of years, because so many parts of our business, you know, have an effect on the climate from how we're sourcing food to what we're serving, to food waste, to packaging, uh, to distribution. And so I think inherently parts of our business naturally lend themselves to being more climate positive. But there's so many parts of our business that we need to focus on and that we can do a better job at. And so we are it's kind of become one of the biggest focuses for us, to be honest. And I think for us, one of the beliefs has always been how do we tell great stories about some of these ingredients and how do we put a lot of the power and the information in the consumer's hands and lead them in that direction? And so, so much of it has been about understanding, you know, there's a lot of information out there these days, and a lot of customers don't know what to think. And so if they, what we found is if customers can understand the small ways every day that they can actually show up and, you know, make a change and, and how their behavior can affect the greater picture, then that's always a really positive thing. Which
1: leads into the next thing that we, I wanted to talk to you about was a few years back, uh, we wrote an article in Lucky Peach, I believe, oh my God, the aqua farmer was Brent Smith and he was an oyster farmer. I think he's still doing oysters and he mm-hmm. was doing 3D farming. And um, uh, we later went there in um, uh, off the coast of uh, New Haven in Connecticut. That's where a lot of his, his aqua farm is. Uh, we took the whole mad team there, Kozlo, Redzepi, um, a bunch of these chefs from Europe just to see kelp farming. Mm-hmm. Because once I learned, I was like, hey, I eat seaweed a lot and kelp a lot. It has been in my diet and growing up. You know, the, the nori keem packs, the Korean packs of seaweed that I was made fun of so much as a kid are now what kids want to eat. So I was like, wait, if I ask people today if people want to eat kelp, people are going to say, not a fucking chance. No way. But I was like, you sort of are. You don't even realize it. And then when you go down the rabbit hole, you realize, oh, man, it's packed with protein. And it really is good for the environment for a, a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. This is going to be the first wave of what I believe will be more kelp products as, as a source of protein, as a source of something that is like a, a symbolic thing of, hey, we want the environment to better, and it can also be aligned with delicious. You call me a few months back saying, hey, Dave, I got an idea. You want to talk about how this aligns with what's important and what sweet cream is and everything that you're going to say I know is going to be aligned with what I believe too.
0: Yeah. You know, again, so as we think about our effect on the climate, so many of the decisions we make are on the back end around how we source and how we, you know, how how we uh, think about all the products in our restaurants. But a lot of it is also how we put that in front of customers. And so as we think about an ingredient like kelp, you know, we get really excited about celebrating ingredients like that, that are, can be super climate positive and have all these benefits, whether it's for the water or land or different reasons. And, you know, part of our belief is that Customers, if they're told the right story and actually know about this, they will care and they can actually show up every day and and make a difference. And even though it's in the smallest of ways, you know, kelp is not going to save the world. But if customers show up every day conscious about what ingredients are better for the, the climate versus not that collectively, that behavior change can have a big impact. And either way, it's a really important conversation to have. And so, yeah, we're excited to be creating a, you know, a bowl on our menu celebrating kelp uh, with you by David Chang. Uh, Really delicious bowl. And, you know, the the goal is just that. to tell a story around kelp and why ingredients like that are important and what goes behind it and what effect it has and ultimately make, you know, climate positive ingredients the coolest ingredients.
1: So that's exactly... What I believe, because I mean, the main goal really was how do you get people to embrace something that is not cool? Kelp, in my opinion, is not that cool right mm-hmm. now. And I, again, I, I can't prevent anything from happening, but if maybe we can shed the light on kelp in a way, because we, I think we've had a good impact on how people consume Asian products in general, whether it be kimchi or just realizing there's other ways and other things to eat in Asian American food, I was like, teaming up with sweet green, there's a demographic of people that associate good eating with sweet green. Maybe this is the best, most impactful way we can do it. It's not going to, again, like prevent it from happening, climate change. But I do believe it's an awareness to maybe having it more part of your diet. And if that's the case, it is more of a symbolic thing about like, hey, this is something I care about.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, for us, we want to just start to have more and more of those conversations with our customers. And listen, kelp, I think is incredibly delicious. And to your point, it's not the sexiest ingredient, but, you know, making it, putting it in a bowl, that's, excuse me, putting it in a bowl, that's really, sorry, putting it in a bowl that is really delicious, I think allows us to create that desire for a product like that. Thank you. And guys,
1: like, there's a lot of work that goes into all the dishes that sweet green. I I was, um, I knew it, but it's one thing to actually be able to put a bowl, which is super cool um, for everyone to taste across all the sweet greens, but to see, like, it is a pretty rigorous process. How many, how many, like, recipes are developed every day, you think? Or are they just screwing around?
0: Um, in the lab, I mean, at any given time, they're working on, <clears throat> I would say, you know, 10 or 12 things. And a lot of those things don't ever make it in front of the customer. But a lot of it starts with our supply chain team. You know, so much of our culinary innovation starts in the field. So we have a team of folks that are in the field talking to farmers, understanding what they're growing, what they wish someone would buy from them. I mean, right now, actually, the best selling bowl on our menu is a miso roasted vegetable that has parsnips, sunchokes, and carrots. And we started buying sunchokes and parsnips from our farmers because so many of them said, man, I have all these sunchokes in the field, but no one wants to buy them. Or like, you know, parsnips aren't really popular. We said, you know what? If they're good for you, we'll buy them. We'll make them cool and we'll make them delicious. And, you know, I don't think we ever heard from one customer beforehand, like, I wish you sold sunchokes. So it wasn't like something we knew we'd sell. But lo and behold, it's the best selling bowl on our menu. And it's something that supports our farmers in a cool way. And, you know... I, Stories like that get us really excited because it's not—it's less about looking at data or listening to your customer because I think its we've always believed in a balance of listening to the customer and leading them. And I would say serving sunchokes on our menu is definitely not something we ever got any requests for.
1: And that was what was amazing working on this project because <clears throat> coming up with what, a flavor that would balance, I'm like, hey, we really want to work with sweet potatoes. I know it's something that you guys have worked well with in the past, but I was like, hey, can we use uh, towel Farms? And Kong, I believe, is one of the great farmers in California. Agreed. And he makes just delicious vegetables. Um, and we particularly love his sweet potatoes. And the fact that you were able to secure that, I was blown away. Yeah. It meant so much to me.
0: Yeah. Kong is one of our favorite farmers. And we've been trying to work with him for a while. And finally, we're able to, you know, spend, I think, the past six months really. Uh, working with him to figure out how, at scale, he could really grow and then transport some of these things for us. And uh, it's worked, and now we're sourcing his ingredients. And, um, again, really excited to be working with someone that just creates the best products.
1: I mean, in Major Domo, which, I mean, I'm incredibly proud of in L.A., I I feel, again, particularly proud of the ingredients we get. Um, I think they're as as good as we could possibly get in America— and we're a very expensive restaurant. And the fact that Sweet Greens is getting the same vegetables is mind-blowing to me because that's not easy to source and it's not cheap.
0: It is not cheap. It is not easy. And, you know, it's... Uh, but at the end of the day, I think back to the point around like quality in the product and so much of our product starts with the farmers we work with. And like so much of the flavor happens from the soil health. And, and so picking the right farmers that are using the right seeds, doing the right thing in the soil, doing the right things to the soil is really how much of our, where our taste starts. So for us, we've we've been really focused on that. And then we have an awesome culinary team that, you know, highlights those flavors. And, you know, as they say verbatim, like don't try to mess with those flavors too much. Right. Uh, and serve those to customers.
1: And the fact that Tao Farms will now be sort of nationally known is amazing to me. And again, putting a spotlight on one of the best in the business in Kong. And then I'm like, well, there's no way this doesn't happen with kelp in general. And whether it's a specific form or not, the fact that if you raise awareness, people are going to be like, hey, maybe a third of my bowl will be kelp now. Yeah. Which is very filling and and tasty once it's properly cooked.
0: Exactly. And I think, you know, listen, maybe customers may come in and this may not work. No one may want to buy the kelp, but I think at a minimum it'll start a conversation. I'm pretty confident with the bowl that we created that it'll be a big hit and people will be really excited about kelp and they'd be thinking about it differently and more importantly be thinking about those kind of ingredients differently but it was also really exciting to learn about that supply chain and you know we work with uh, Atlantic Sea Farms up in Maine and it's crazy to think about you know the water up there is warming faster than I think any other body of water and it's putting lobster fishermen and their jobs at risk and so you start to think about when you when you're faced with the like the real effects of climate change and things like that. Like this lobster fisherman who's been, you know, their family's been fishing for decades is, may not be able to do that the next decade. Like those things are real, that's tangible. So when you start to think about that, then it gets a lot more real.
1: I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Because I got an angry letter from um i believe it's got to be the same person across all platforms to our podcast Faces saying shut the fuck up about your politics we don't want to hear about climate change you liberal mother effer and i'm just like jesus christ like people don't want to mix politics and food i get it's not you don't talk about religion you don't talk about politics at the dinner table but how do you not now
0: Yeah, it's really challenging because those things are, I mean, climate change and uh, talking about it in politics, things like climate change and immigration are like affect our business so much, affect the business of farming. And you think about, you know, like I said, being a farmer is literally the hardest, you know, way harder than being in the food industry, in my opinion. They can't figure out labor, labor shortages, and then their product is 100%, you know, at the mercy of Mother Nature every day, which is getting even more volatile. So like you think about those effects on ultimately how we eat and how the food, our food, supply is going to be created, and it's really, really scary that we're not talking about it more.
1: I I don't know if you can't talk about it anymore. I think uh, for a long time, restaurants were sort of agnostic to it. But mm-hmm. the reality is we might be the best vehicle to talk about it to a mm-hmm. lot of people because in our industry, things do trickle down in how people care about it. Again, kelp being one of them. It's like, I want people to care more about kelp. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine in five years you're going to see it at a Whole Foods in a bag of seawater, right? Maybe it already exists. I don't know, but um, that would be cool. Um, what, what's the what's what's next? What Where is uh, Sweet Greens headed in, like, growth expansion? Are there towns that are going to get a Sweet Greens that they don't have it yet?
0: Yeah, I would say we've got some exciting plans this year. As always, you know, I think uh, we have the entrepreneur's curse that we try to do too much, so we're doing a lot this next year. Uh, We're growing a a bunch of new cities, including Miami and Austin. Uh, Really excited about that. Uh, We're really, the biggest thing we're focusing on is this, and it's related to like the delivery conversation before, but is this new form of a, a new channel for us called Outpost. So Outpost is basically the sweet green pickup shelf that you see in our restaurants. So this is
1: proprietary. You guys created this, right? We
0: created this. We created the technology and the experience and launched it about a year and a half ago. Um, And we take that pickup shelf and put it in office buildings and lobbies and residential buildings, pretty much anywhere else, you know, you could put a shelf. It almost becomes like a decentralized pickup experience. Um, And what happens is if you're working in that office building, you can order your specific bowl to that shelf and we deliver it for free. So if you order by the cutoff time, which is, you know, 11 or 12, it comes within an hour. So it's kind of like, you know, personalized large batch catering, but you can pay on your own app and order your own thing. And for the reason why we're excited about this is because I think, as you think about the economic model of delivery, I think this becomes a lot more exciting because the customer gets free delivery so there's less friction for them. They don't even have to leave their office. Um, And so the response from our customers has been pretty amazing. We'll have a thousand of these live by end of Q1. And just growing more and more. And ultimately, like I said in the beginning of the, our conversation, just trying to remove as much friction as possible for customers and healthy food.
1: <clears throat> what you just described to me, and again, people are, I would say, bothering me quite a bit to help them on their new technology food delivery businesses because they're <laughs> coming. There's a, a whole shit ton of <laughs> new food delivery services coming to you, um, but I, I I always tell them, hey, you should focus first and foremost on the cultures that have had food delivery long before a, a smartphone. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> what you described to me is very similar to what Tiffin is in India mm-hmm. and Bento is in Japan and the Dosirak in Korea. Yeah. But we haven't really studied them. I think people study them to copy the food, but I'm just like, no, 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 look at the pattern of what's happening. And what you described to me is how a lot of the higher end office, not higher end because you can't get... Affordable Bentos, whether it's in a train station or not, it's just a simple contract. Hey, um tomorrow I want this, and these are the options and you strike it off yeah. on your paper or you give them a call and it's a beautiful thing when you say frictionless, that's exactly that or like, hey, yeah. tomorrow I know I'm going to get a a locker box with some fish, some vegetables, some rice, and whatever, and it's going to be great, and tomorrow I'll get beef on rice or whatever yeah. that's all you're doing and to give people that variety it's like it's amazing but it doesn't have to get lost in i love that you didn't describe it as like oh we're creating this thing and it's a button this blah blah blah. it's just it is what it is it's
0: inherently pretty simple
1: Yeah. yeah but it's been around for millennia in other cultures why hasn't it ever happened in america
0: it's a good question i mean i think you look at this whole delivery space and it's in parts of it are pretty new parts of it have been around for a while but i think ultimately it's been around uh ultimate convenience and, and the thing for us that we're focused on is usually a lot of offices have catering programs or they have food service in their office but to be able to order your specific customized bowl to your nutritional or dietary preferences but they're not
1: or, buying the ingredients you guys are again that's what no, separates that's Sweet from all the competitors yeah. like you guys are really trying to buy the best product out there and you can't make something good with shit you just can't agreed with that right it, they always say like you can't turn a great movie from a shitty script it's the same yeah. thing you know um do you think that well just talking about bento's and such what i love most about bento's and even tiffins because i know much more about bento's than i do about tiffin food culture is the fact that it is incredibly green hey we're mm-hmm. you're, we're giving you this thing that's a a nice box lunch box and you're going to return it to us the next day and then we're going to wash it and it just continues it's a it's a beautiful act in my opinion. It's like it's trust, and it's like, hey, I'm going to drop it off. I'm going to pick it up. Yep. It's like the milkman. Like I'm going to drop <laughs> off the glass, and you're going to drink it, and you're going to return it. Can we go back to that where people are getting customized lunch boxes essentially?
0: Yeah, you know, I think it's really exciting to think about uh, a channel like Outpost for us and what it unlocks and our ability to possibly do something closed loop like that. Um ultimately I think for us as as a business we balance this idea of trying to you know make it as accessible and frictionless as possible to get this kind of food and a lot of our food is to go but I think in a in a channel like Outpost it does unlock certain possibilities around um the products and packaging you're using so that's definitely something we're talking about I would
1: bet like a lot of money that that's going to be the future I just think that everything's going to go mm-hmm. back to the 1940s and 50s in some <laughs> certain ways not again not everything but I do believe buffets and stuff like that are going to make a comeback. And this whole idea of having glass or something yeah. that is a real product that people can hold on to is going to be the next thing. And again, whoever can crack that code, it makes it a lot harder for anyone else to do because that, again, is great for the environment. And you're already seeing it. Like like uh, airlines are like, hey, we're, they're going to instead give you a plastic bottle, they're going to be like. We only do glass yeah, or stuff like that. I don't know, but we'll see. Um, anything else you want to talk about?
0: <clears throat> um, you know, I think the other thing that's our biggest focus this next year, and to be honest, just indefinitely is, you know, I talked about the hardest part of our business is people. And you know this being in the restaurant business, finding great talent and retaining them and keeping them happy. It's probably been our biggest focus and will continue to be. But, you know, we did launch something last year that I think was stirred up a bigger conversation around that. And it was our uh, paid to leave which I don't know if I even t- talked to you about this, mm-hmm. but so we launched uh company wide for all, not just our office, but for all retail workers, uh, five months fully paid leave for um, fathers, mothers, adoptive parents, um, foster parents. And so if you're an hour, if you're, you know, the dishwasher at sweet cream and you're working for us for, I think the cutoff is <clears throat> a certain, you know, nine or 12 months um, you get five months full paid leave. And for us, it was, you know, we launched it before even talking about it. And, a lot of it was around how do we attract the best people, but ultimately even if it gets us better talent and it's better for our business, we also just feel like it's, what's right. It's crazy. There's no national requirement around uh, print parental leave. You know, I think they say us and like Papua New Guinea are the only two countries in the whole United Nations that don't require anything federally. And so it's pretty wild. You think about some of our team members and how hard their life is and they're sometimes living week to week. And when they have a baby, it's like it completely disrupts their life. So how do we support that? So, it's that's probably been one of the proudest things we've done. And so hopefully it continues to get us more and more talent. But I think in general, it's just a more important conversation to have around how do we continue to support team members and retail workers and and food service workers? And how do, how do we make their experience uh, even more positive?
1: How do you balance that with people that might be an investor? And they're like my, their goal that this is the problem again with capitalism in some way is (laughs) it is, it is like a psychopath. They don't give a shit. how do you balance that with trying to do the right thing and the the goal of, Hey, I want to make the highest return. Is it possible? Like I just saw what Bridgewater or Blackstone or BlackRock, one of those huge companies that just said, we're not going to invest in any companies that aren't environmentally conscious anymore. Mm -hmm. It's happening. Mm -hmm. But like, to me, that's also like maybe a paradox. How do you explain, this is just what I'm struggling with doing the right thing, in your company versus what someone wants as a return, because that's something you have as well. A lot of people get to this problem; they don't understand it. Is you take money in, yeah, people want it back.
0: Yeah, you know, you raise money from other people, and it's, it's. I mean, for us, we've been very fortunate to raise raise money from people that believe in this kind of stuff and understand that a, it's our values, it's what we believe in. But it's also when you look at something like print to leave, you don't. We don't see it as purely a cost. We see it as more of an investment. Right. Investment, not just in like, again, we think it's just the right thing to do for people, but it's also good for our business. Yes. If we can, if my tenure and retention can improve, like my business will be more profitable. So for me, and there's ways to show that with data, but aside from all that data, we also just believe it's the right thing to do. And I guess it's more of this conscious capitalism mindset that you can make certain investments that maybe in the first year or in the short term aren't as profitable, but in the long run actually create a lot more value for everyone at the table.
1: Amen. And, and I think that's something that you guys have done as a benchmark for everyone in this business and not just the food business, but, you know, I always say like, Hey, I, I t- I'm tired of going to Google, visiting the campus and be like, wow, they have fucking everything. Mm. I don't know if a food business will ever get to that power, but, you know, hopefully you guys do, or maybe we do, or anyone, I, I, I change has to happen. So it's amazing to see a leader like Green making these things happen because, um, I, I personally believe you can run your business in a morally, like, positive way and be profitable. So, I I have no other things other to say. Like a lot of people may not agree with that.
0: Yeah, hey, that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: I forgot one more thing I want to talk to Nick about, and this is this is where you can learn anything if you just keep your eyes open. Um. And I was in Sweet Greens a couple years ago, and I was looking at them prep tomatoes, cherry tomatoes. And my mind was like, oh, my God, this is fucking genius. It was one of the smartest things I've ever seen. And I saw, you know, those liter, couple liter sort of square lids, the green tops or blue tops, doesn't matter. They had put, you know, as many cherry tomatoes on one side of the lid, and they put another another equal size lid on top of the cherry tomatoes. And then they just sliced straight through. Yeah. Again, I was like, "Fuck!" I had never <laughs> seen that in my life. It's the best way I've ever seen cutting any kind of cherry
0: tomato, and it having a sweet green. What's the story behind that? Yeah, we do that with grapes as well. Um, but uh, you know, that was a hack that came from our team members. Someone in the restaurant early on, I think it was in D.C., you know, who had to cut a huge full full bin of tomatoes every day. They said. They just figured out a hack to do it quicker.
1: Is that the industry way now for Sweet Green?
0: Uh, every store does that now. Yeah, it's, it's become our standard that we train. So, so it's hilarious. But it's a good note because sometimes the best ideas are the ones that come from the field. So you always have to be watching and listening. And uh, some of the best ideas are the ones that come from our team members. They're closest to the food.
1: Hey, I, I imagine that's exactly what happened. And someone was like, fuck this. This is the worst. I can't imagine yeah. <laughs> doing this anymore. There's got to be a faster yeah. way. And I was like, shit, having cut a lot of cherished tomatoes, I was like blown away. It was one of those things like, God, I'm so stupid. Of course, that's the answer. Yeah. So that's my favorite Sweetgreen story is how they cut cherry tomatoes and then grapes. (laughs) All right. Done. Well, that was my conversation with Nick Chimay. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Go check out our collaboration with Sweetgreen. It's the tingly sweet potato kelp bowl I think it's delicious. Shout out to Max Eng, JJ Basile, Noel Cornelio, the whole team at Momofuku for working so diligently with the Sweet Green team. And also, I'm super proud of our seasoned salts. The tingly spice is delicious. And, um, you know, it's weird to have this idea come to fruition and to have it all out there in the world now is is super cool. And I'm, It's one of the very few times I'm proud of what we do. I'm always proud, but it's like, one of those times I can step back and be like, this is pretty cool. So, thank you guys for the support and uh, go check it out and uh, eat more kelp. That's for sure. Wanted to get to a couple Ask Dave at MajordomoMedia.com questions. Give us five stars on iTunes and ask a question and we will get to that. Or just send it in the OG way Ask Dave at MajordomoMedia.com, one word, and uh, we'll get to it. And Devin Maddox, who sent a question at Dave at Majordomomedia.com, asks, As I was listening to the recent episode with Adam Platt, it occurred to me, in some ways, I view you as a critic. Probably not what you want to hear, but hear me out. The reason, I think, is because you have shaped my view about restaurants as much as any critic has, where to eat, recent history of chef culture, trends in restaurants, and how to think about technique, experience, presentation, and deliciousness. Over the past two years especially, I've looked to you to shape my point of view in the same way I might have a newspaper food critic 25 years ago. To me, as a listener, the podcast episode experience was more like two critics debating one another. Of course, both of you came to your point of view through completely different backgrounds, but you both serve us, the public, in similar ways. I'd love to know if this is something that you've thought much more about as a magazine publisher, podcaster, social media poster, as well as the chef. Well, thank you, Devin, I'm honored. And again, I don't know if I gave enough of a shout out to Adam Platt of New York Magazine for being such a good sport. He's one of the best critics of our generation and highly entertaining, and and he's definitely carved out a unique way of talking about food in New York City. And uh, go check out his book, The Book of Eating. It's a very fun read and illuminating. And again, I'm always surprised that chefs don't read up on every kind of criticism, particularly food criticism around the world. You should definitely do that, especially if you're a younger cook. You got to know how food is understood. But to Devin's question, is there something that we will do that will better serve the public in similar ways of educating the dining public from technique experience presentation and deliciousness and trends and culture and all of those things and the answer is unequivocally yes one of the reasons why i wanted to do major doma media was to tell these stories and you know it's in some ways it's another offshoot or evolution i think of lucky peach the magazine but the world of doing it in the form of podcast has been something i've wanted to do all the way since then it's been on top of mind for a long time, because it's something I've said a lot, the trends in this world, particularly in food that I know, I know and follow, are moving at such a rapid pace. And over the past 15 plus years, food knowledge is at a higher level than it's ever been before. We have a generation of diners here in America that know more about dining and food than, they, than ever before. And how we eat has changed, and and what we eat has changed, and the diversity of it is immense. Yet, a lot of how we are able to process food knowledge has remained stagnant and the same. And I don't think it's stagnant because there hasn't been great output. I'm not at all. What I mean is stagnant is by the fact that there's just so much shit to cover. How do you do it? And that's the thing is, I think that maybe one of the questions we have to ask is, How relevant is how we cover food these days? I don't know. I'm just presenting these questions and maybe there's different ways to do it. And for me, I always go back to this idea of pragmatism. It's a school of philosophy that was as American as apple pie or baseball. And it's something that has been very, very important to me, how I view the world and how I live my life is that truth is most certain to me What is most useful to you? And it's different than just being relative all the time. And it's also one of the reasons why I think pragmatism as a school of thought gets a lot of shit from other critics of it. But for me, you know, like I started off this podcast talking about Korean food, particularly kelp and seaweed and how it now is cool and now is accepted. And the reality is, is without going too deep into it, because I'm the worst person in the world to talk about this stuff, is that it's just now useful to say it's good, and I think in some ways if you can make that leap of logic, the same way can be true about how we present food in different mediums, and I wanna use this podcast and start to launch other podcasts and on TV that sort of give us more nimbleness than producing print journalism. Listen, the New York Times is always gonna be the best in class, you have other magazines and other blog sites that are doing awesome. Like Eater is really fantastic. And the reality is it takes a lot of time, a lot of money. And what I love about doing podcasts is the fact that it's a little bit faster, not a little bit, it's a whole lot faster. You don't have to actually work on something and then have it printed out and there's this lag time. It just allows you to create content that much faster. And what world could I ever have a conversation with Adam Platt in a Q&A in print. Yes, it could exist, but I having re-listened to that podcast, I just think it was so rich with details and if I was someone that covered food or followed food, it would and I do, it would be incredibly illuminating to me. So, I don't know if I'm answering your question Devin. I know I've just veered off topic, but there will be more content. And one of the things that I've been working on with Chris Ying one of the founders of Major Doma Media and Doc O'Connor and Chris Chen is the idea of creating opportunities to have an ombudsman. And the Latin term for that, oh my God, is, you know what? I'm just going to fucking look it up right now. Um, it is by definition, An official who's charged with representing the interest of the public by investigating and addressing complaints of maladministration or violation of rights. The ombudsman is usually appointed by the government or by parliament, but with a significant degree of independence. In some countries, an inspector general, citizen advocate or other official may have duties similar to those of a national ombudsman and may be appointed by a legislature, blah, 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 blah. I'm reading off the Wikipedia page. Um, Anyway. Devin, so you brought up something that we've been talking about a lot and creating some kind of ombudsman that allows us to sort of grade the critics, to have an idea what's going on, what's right, what's wrong, and to keep people honest. And I think that's better going to serve the public, right? We make mistakes. Chefs, we make mistakes all the time and we're judged accordingly but now in a world of transparency and a world of knowledge that should be available to all journalists. And it's something I said to Adam, it's not an excuse anymore to not have your facts and not do the work. And I want to have this platform and create a podcast. That's what I think we're going to do call Ombudsman that keeps things honest, And it's not just going to be about restaurants. It's going to be music, anything cultural. Hopefully we'll get other critics to like review themselves in the same way the new york Times review of books you have authors writing reviews of other authors i think that's amazing and i'd love to have other critics like great other critics or be an independent source of opinion that would be fantastic and i think in a cool way to do it as a podcast anyway give us five stars however you rate this podcast stay tuned tomorrow for our podcast with sean gray and suan ruiz of co Thanks again to Nick Chimay. Talk to you guys later.